Father God, thank you for this time that we can come before you as a church family. And we thank you, Lord, that even though there is uh, much sickness going around and, and that many in our church have been um, sidelined this week, we know that you are still a good and faithful God and in control of all things. And so we lift you up and we lift up our brothers and sisters who are at home today. And we thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. And we ask for your sustaining grace with them to carry them through this morning as or this afternoon as we turn to your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the hearts to receive and you would help us, Lord, to understand better from your holy word the truth that you have for us, the revelation you have for us of who Christ is and who we are and how much we need you. And so we thank you, God, for this time. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good afternoon. It's good to be with all of you. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. I think uh, I know most of you here today. Like I mentioned, um, we do have quite a few servants sick this week, and I know there's been a lot of sickness going around, so um, uh, we, we are thankful for those of you who have served or subbed in last minute. Um, and it was kind of a fun throwback to have Jeff up here leading by himself today and for me to preach because I don't know if you know this, but when we first started the church uh, in 2015, we were meeting in home. It was actually Jeff's home and our home, and we would meet, and, and Jeff would lead worship, and I would often preach, and so it's kind of a, a cool throwback for me. For the rest of you, you're probably like, what's going on? Why is this uh, service so pared down? But we're so thankful that you're here with us. Um, I want to start this afternoon by having you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 30. We are near the end of the book of 1 Samuel, which we've been preaching through uh, chapter by chapter over the past months. Um, and even though we're near the end of the book, um, don't get your hopes up too high because we are going to go through 2 Samuel. It is one book in the original um, Hebrew. They have split it up because back then you had to write um, all of the words in a scroll. And it's not that they couldn't make a huge scroll, but if you think about it, scrolls can be pretty heavy. So they broke it up so that you weren't lugging around like a humongous, like a 70-pound scroll just for the book of Samuel. So they broke it up uh, in ancient times. It is two books, but we are going to take a slight break in between. But 1 Samuel chapter 30, that's where we are going to be this afternoon. Before we get into the text, um, I want to ask you a question. Why do bad things happen? Paul Miller was a minister, and he had grown up in a family that had a great uh, Christian pedigree, you might say. His father was a famous or influential minister in the Pacific Northwest, and actually he was uh, really um, important to kind of the growing gospel-centered movement in the 60s, 70s, and 80s of the church. And so he was super influential in people that you've probably heard of, people such as Jerry Bridges, heard his teaching and then really uh, um, internalized that into their teaching later on. Uh, Tim Keller is another pastor who really uh, took on the teaching from Paul Miller's father, Jack Miller, who was this influential pastor. He went on to be a teacher at Westminster Seminary, and Paul, growing up in that environment, uh, really followed the Lord at a very young age. He, he dedicated his life to ministry. When he got married to his wife, Jill, they were faithful in the church, in the home, with serving the body of Christ around the world. They lived with little monetarily, but they always wanted to live for the Lord. And in 1982, when Paul and Jill were kind of in the midst of uh, their ministry, they became pregnant with their sixth child, a baby girl. And as the due date approached, Jill told Paul that she had been praying Psalm 121 over the baby, which says, the Lord will keep you from evil 
he will keep your life. And her desire and her prayer, as it is for most expecting moms, was that God would protect the baby from all harm. But when the day of delivery came, bad things happened. For one, the doctor who was in charge of the delivery, and this was again in the 80s, uh, it was a little bit of a different time, he overdosed uh, Jill on the Pitocin and, and kind of induced her too quickly, and she was in tremendous pain. And she had given birth to five other babies, but this baby, this birth, was completely different, and they could tell something was wrong, but to top it off, the doctor who had done this left and never returned. Like her delivery doctor never came back to the delivery room. And so in this traumatic, um, rushed delivery that was more painful than anything he had seen his wife go through, the baby finally came out, but she wasn't normal. She came out blue. She was struggling to breathe at first. And though she eventually stabilized, Paul and Jill knew that something was wrong. As years went by, if you've heard the story before, but most of you probably haven't, their daughter, Kim, had more bad things happen. She didn't develop normally. Her muscles just didn't have any definition as she began to grow. Her eyes wouldn't focus the way that a child's eyes should. She didn't speak. She never learned to talk for years and years and decades. And it was so bad that one neurologist that they went to even wondered if Jill had severely beaten her daughter early on, which, of course, was not true. And as Paul Miller describes it, he says, it was agony for us, especially for Jill. She had prayed that God would keep Kim from all harm, but as they looked at their daughter, they were clearly holding a harm child. It's a difficult story, though it isn't the end, and we'll come back to this story later. But it makes us ask the question again, why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen? The Pew Research Group, they released a study uh, a few months ago where they asked this question of Americans, and, and the answers that they got were pretty interesting. Most people that they asked in America, most adults said that bad things, they, they just happen and you don't know why, right? Kind of like Hakuna Matata, Timon and Pumbaa kind of idea, right? It just happens, and we don't have any understanding of the causes for it. It's just random chance. But in the same survey... Most people, over two-thirds of the adults that they surveyed, expressed the belief that bad things, that evil, that suffering in our life is somehow supposed to lead to something good. Perhaps you feel the same way this afternoon. You don't know, of course, the cause of every bad thing, but you have the feeling, maybe a gut feeling, that there is still a way in which bad things are supposed to turn out good. And if that's you this morning, then we need to see what the Word of God says the Word of God tells us that this natural idea that most Americans have, surprisingly in this area of life, isn't too far off from the truth. It just needs to be defined by the Word of God of what exactly that good is. Why do bad things happen? The Bible tells us we don't always know the cause. Okay, We don't always know God's cosmic uh, background reasons for why he allows things into our lives. But if we're willing to listen, if we look to God's Word, we can know that he has a good purpose, that there is a good result in store for those who come to him in the difficulties and trials and suffering of life. So 1 Samuel chapter 30, the next chapter in the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to see these lessons together. As we look at this passage, we're going to break it down into three sessions. First, the ruin, 
Second, the return. And finally, the restoration. The last chapter ended with David being spared by the providence of God from being put in a situation where he would either have to fight the Israelites as part of the Philistine army because he was living among them, or he would have to kind of out himself as loyal to the um, Israelites all along and put his men in danger. And what happened at the end of the last chapter is God had kind of, by, by grace, made it so the Philistines didn't want David around. So they sent him back. It felt like he was kind of freed from this difficult situation. They sent him back home to his home base, and it, it appeared as if they had been spared the worst. But in our chapter today, when they finally get home, they don't find relief. They find ruin. And that's the first point, the ruin. Read verses 1 through 6 with me. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one. They carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. You can stop right there. David and his men return home out of one difficult situation only to find that they have seemingly lost everything. Now, David and his men had made Ziklag their home base. It has been so for the last 16 months if you're following along in the story of 1 Samuel. And verse 1 tells us that as they come home, as it were, it's burned down with fire. At this point, they don't know who did it. They don't know how it happened. They don't know how long ago it was, only that it seems like everyone had been abducted because there are no bodies left behind in the wreckage. And so David and his men, if you are reading the story, it seems like they've come out of the frying pan but into the fryer. And I use the term ruin here because I think it adequately describes how they would have felt. It adequately describes the hopelessness, the despair, the pain, the exhaustion that these men and David felt in this situation. In only six verses, there is immense loss. There is ruin. You know, the loss of family is one of the worst things that I can imagine as a father now, right? Just, just, when I think about that, that's one of the few things in a movie that can make me actually feel like crying is when I see these situations where a child is lost or imagining the loss of my family in some way. And this nightmare is the reality that David and his men return to. It might be called rock bottom in their lives. Not that it's the worst that could happen, right? There are maybe worse things that could happen, but they never expected it to be this bad. And verses 3 and 4, if you read that again, it shows us just how emotionally distraught they are. They raise their voices aloud and they weep until they have no more strength to weep. Can you imagine being in that situation? Can you imagine the emotional state? It makes sense in light of how bad this really is. They've lost their homelands already. They've lost their reputations. Now their houses and their possessions and even their families. And the text tells us David, along with them, he's not spared or immune to this. He loses his wives, his families, his family. This leads to sorrow. It leads to anger and ultimately to blame. And verse 6 shows us that at this point in David's life, even though he's the chosen king, even though he's the one that, that God said would be the next king, the one after his own heart in Israel, something happens that's never happened before. The men 
turn against him. David's own allies, his people, turn against him. His own army is angry and wants to kill him. It says David was greatly distressed. Or you could translate it even that David was in great danger because the men began to speak of stoning him because they had lost everything. The first scene in these six verses in this chapter is a scene of ruin. And it's instructive for us because it reminds us that evil can and will come into our lives from many directions. On the one hand, it can come upon us like this sudden tragedy, like an enemy that raids your home, or just a diagnosis that comes out of nowhere, or, or a person who sins against you, or a tragedy. But on the other hand, sometimes we have a little bit of a part to play in the evil too. Sometimes the evil that comes into our life has to do with our own sin. Sometimes, oftentimes, as is the case, as we'll see in this story, it's a combination of both. You see, if you look at David's ruin, it has both of these elements. Yeah, these people came and they, they burned Ziklag to the ground, and David didn't have anything to do with that, but the whole reason they were there in the first place, it was because of David. I remember when we planted the church, uh, we talked to a bunch of pastors before we came out to do this, and uh, we asked them about their experiences and their advice for us in church planting. And we got a lot of advice that I forgot already, uh, but we also got some wonderful advice. And one of the best advices that was given had to do with prayer. And the pastor said, when you guys start, you'll probably be praying a lot. Don't ever stop your prayer meeting. And why do you, like, you, you think, well, no, who stops their prayer meeting? Actually, a lot of churches stop their prayer meeting because it becomes less and less important over time. And he said, never stop praying for the church because, he said, if you guys do this church plant and you're praying and you're bringing it to the Lord and you're seeking his will and things don't go the way that you would want, then you'll be able to rest that at least you were seeking after the Lord. You were following his plan. You were doing things his way. But if you stop praying... If you stop going to the Lord, if you stop seeking him and things fail, then you'll always wonder, is it because we were doing our own will and not the Lord's? You always wonder whether or not it was because you had forgotten about God and were instead pursuing your own way. If we look at this story, I think this explains a little bit of the response of why David's men want to stone him. It's not because he's the one who took their families away. But if you guys have been following the story with us the past weeks, you'll know that the whole reason they're in Ziklag, the whole reason they're not in Israel and safe is because David had this plan, not from God, his own plan, to go and hide among the Philistines. David's ruin is made all the worse because he knows now in this point in 1 Samuel that if he's honest, he hasn't been following the Lord very closely. The truth is that for 16 months, he has been leading his men, not in God's way, but the way that he thought was best. David, who once fought the lion and the bear and the giant out of faith and obedience, now has been doing what David thinks is smartest and wisest, most clever. And this is where it has led, to the loss of everything, even the support of his men. And so the ruin of Ziklag reminds us that there are times in our life where bad things will happen. Sometimes even beyond what we expect and even beyond what we feel we can bear. That will bring us to the end of ourselves because bad things happen or because sometimes we're involved in the evil that comes. And if you feel that way, then you need to know from these verses that you're not the first of God's people to feel it. That this happens even to Christians who know God. It happens even to David the future king, the man after God's own heart, 
He is the chosen one. But in this moment, he still experiences ruin. See, bad things happen to good people, and they happen to bad people as all of us are. Good thing, bad things happen to non-Christians, and they happen to Christians. Even if you want to try to close your eyes to that truth, it is true. Bad things happen to people who don't have a clue about how to process it, and they happen to those who have all the right answers, seemingly. If you're truthful to God's word, we know that bad things will happen to you. Trials and tribulations will come. Evil from the world, evil from others, evil that comes from our own sin. And when it does, we need to see then what David does in response to his ruin and learn from him. As we're following this story, David, who's in kind of rock bottom in his life at this point, further down than he ever thought he'd be, by the grace of God, he doesn't go to despair or to hatred or disobedience, as many of us are prone to do, as Saul did. Instead, in response to his ruin, David doesn't run away, but he returns to the Lord. And this is what we see next in this chapter. David's return, verses 6 to 15. I said that David had been kind of doing his own thing for a while in the narrative. But now at the second part of verse 6, look look what it says. It says, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. In response to this crazy situation, in response to this terrible reality, in response to his ruin, the Bible gives us this wonderful verse, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And if nothing else is heard, hear this fact. When bad things happen, God wants his people to return and strengthen ourselves in the Lord our God. It's in this act of strengthening himself in the Lord that we see David once again begin to live as a man after God's own heart. We've said it often, David and Saul are kind of similar in uh, unnerving ways. They start out good, they stumble in different respects. Neither of them is perfect, but when David finds himself in ruin, he does not reject God, he does not disobey the Lord, he does not blame others in self-righteousness, he turns back to the Lord. And this is what God desires all of us to do in any ruin we find ourselves in. He returns to seek a relationship with the Lord, his God. Even that little part of this chapter is so important. It says David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. It's a personal reference. The Lord, who who he's been a little bit far from for 16 months, is once again David's personal shepherd. And David, though he hadn't been acting like it, knows it is true, and so he strengthens himself in that fact. He turns to God personally to seek him and to follow him and to obey him. David remembered who he was. He remembered who God was, and he sought the Lord personally. What else? Verse 7. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. Here's the next instructive thing for us. David's return to the Lord his God leads to his obedience now. In spite of his trial. In spite of the bad thing that happens, it leads to obedience. Remember the lessons of Saul. To obey is better than sacrifice, Samuel told him multiple times. And this is what David's story shows us. In this low point, in this valley, in this situation that 
he probably hates, David turns to the Lord, not just for comfort, but for instruction, ready to listen and obey. He brings the ephod that Abiathar, the priest, has. It's a way we talked about in a sermon a few months ago. It's a way to kind of inquire of the Lord in God's uh, determined uh, way. He told the people of Israel how to do this. David says he will seek the Lord's will in God's way again, inquiring of him as he should have before. And I think as we read this story, it's, it's symbolically really cool. Because David, he's outside of his homeland, right? He can't physically go back to the tabernacle. He can't go back to Shiloh. He can't go back to the palace. He can't go back to his uh, extended family in Bethlehem. He's kind of stuck in the situation. And yet, he can still return to his God. He can strengthen himself in the Lord. All he needs is to know the word of God, to inquire of it, and then to obey. See, Christians, as you think about God's purpose for hard times, for difficulties, by the grace of God, we as Christians have the Word of God and the Spirit of God with us today. We have the Bible. And, and as I read this story, it's almost as if David, after 16 months of, of, of being in Philistia, has, has taken his Bible that has this dust uh, gathering upon it, and he finally, in this ruin, picks it up and opens it again, and puts it on the desk, and he prays. He prays, Lord, lead me. Lord, I don't know what to do. Direct my life. Tell me what to do, and I will do it. And it sounds so simple, but this is what so many Christians need to hear over and over again. Right? We, we live our lives, and we go through kind of good times and bad, and when the bad times come, often that's the only thing that will shake us out of our slumber to reopen the word of God, to go back to the Lord, to remember that he is our personal God and to want to be directed by him and his word again. When's the last time you've done that? You know, as Christians, we love to sing songs about like surrendering to God, right? Those are popular all the time. I remember as a, as a high schooler and, and college student, I love those songs. There was one song in particular that just, um, I don't know, maybe I love the tune of it. I sang it a lot. But I probably sang it for approximately 12 years of my life before I ever thought about actually surrendering to God at all. Have you ever come to God with a blank agenda? Seeking his will. Seeking his word so that you can put his things into your calendar before you schedule your own. So you can put his priorities into your life before you put all the things that you think are important on the table. Oftentimes, it's the bad things in life that cause us to finally do that. See, Saul actually did seek God often, but he did it for his own gain, to become popular with the people, to, to escape blame for a circumstance he created. But David sought God in this chapter to do what God wanted him to do. If you read the verses, it's interesting. He doesn't say, God, uh, make me successful when I go after him. He even asked, should I even go after the family. He starts at a base level. He says, God, what do you want me to do? Should I seek after these, these missing family members? Should I go after this raiding party? What do you want me to do? He's starting from ground zero again. God, you be God, and I'll be the one who follows. He's ready to listen, and he's ready to obey. So why do bad things happen? Well, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 1-9 that one of the purposes of God 
in suffering, in bad things, is to teach us to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. To trust not in yourself anymore, but in the Lord. To find peace not in your own will, but in his. To obey not your own desires, but his. Brothers and sisters, when you find yourself in a dark place or in sorrow or in a valley, strengthen yourself in the Lord. Like David does, return to him. And this applies in every evil situation. Even if you can't see it at first. If you are the victim of someone else's sin against you, Strengthen yourself in the Lord who bore all our sins on the cross. He says that we can forgive because he has forgiven us. When you are the victim of this fallen world, where there is evil in your life that comes as, as just tragedy, because bad things do happen, strengthen yourself in the Lord who has overcome the world and guaranteed us the world to come that will be freed of those things. When you are the one whose sin has brought evil into your life, when it's a long-standing um, idolatry, a long-standing sin, something that's kind of controlling your life, strengthen yourself in the Lord, in the word that instructs us to repent and turn from our idolatry and to believe that he can cleanse us. See, I think that for me, if I'm honest, when I do come to dark times, I turn often to the flesh or to the internet or to experts or to entertainment. But I don't often turn to the Lord. And if that's you, then the maybe it's because I don't live as if he is the Lord my God at all. I live as if I'm the one who sets the agenda. And yet in the hard and bad and evil things, when they push us to the end of ourselves, what God desires for us is that we would return to him. That we would strengthen ourselves in him that we would submit and surrender to him. This is what David does in the face of ruin. He returns to the Lord, he seeks his will, and then it tells us that he obeys. As we see this story unfold, it's not just a return to the Lord, but a return to David for beginning to live the life of faith. Take a look at what happens next. David and his men are exhausted it's not smooth sailing. They, they, they go out, but as they get there, they get to this brook, Besor, okay? And this brook uh, is not actually, like, flowing. At this point in the season, it's dry. And so it literally is a large valley. It's kind of symbolic. They get to this large valley, and a third of his men, 200 of them, they're so tired and so exhausted and so worn out that they can't make it across. They're just like, we can't, we can't do this hike. We can't go down there and back up again. And so they give up. They, they sit down. They, they say, we're out. They stop. And so it requires faith. Right? David loses a third of his men. Is he still going to believe in what the Lord has said? Is he still going to follow it? His faith is tested, but he obeys. He leaves behind these men. They go across the brook, this valley, and they continue to seek after the raiding party. And now remember, at this point in the story, we know who it is, but David and his men, they have no idea. Right, they were gone when Ziklag was burned. They don't know who came. They don't know who did it. They maybe have some clues. I'm kind of reminded of like uh, that scene in Star Wars where, you know, I'm talking about like Luke comes back to his house and actually there's two scenes. They kill all the Jawas and they're like, who did this? And he's like, it's only stormtroopers are so precise. Anyways, um, sorry to bring that up. I was just watching Star Wars with my family this week. Uh, they don't know who it is. They don't know if it's uh, the stormtroopers or the sand people or the Amalekites. Um, and so they go on. And then in verse 11, we see that as David lives by faith, as David returns to this life of faith, 
God grants him what he needs through his gracious provision. Verse 11, they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. They just find an Egyptian in the open country. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Keratites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. It just so happens as David begins to walk by faith and obedience that they find a man lying in the desert, dying. One single man in in the wilderness, they find him. He's not yet dead, and they show compassion on him, and they feed him a tiny meal, and they nurse him back to life. And it just so happens that he's been out there exactly how long a person can live without water before they die, about three days. And as he starts to tell them who he is, we can't help but marvel at how God provides for David and shows himself worthy of David's trust and faith and obedience. This starving man is exactly what David needs to do what God told him to do. See, in the providence of God, he got sick and left behind by the Amalekites three days ago. And as David and his men revive him and they talk to him, they find out that he's pretty much the only person who could possibly be found who could give them the information they need. Exactly where the Amalekites were going to head to, where their camp was located. Exactly who they are and how many of them there were in the raiding party. This is the exact thing that David needs to be obedient to God and to continue to walk by faith. David's return to the Lord is a return not just to seeking and inquiring of the Lord, but to actually living in obedience to him. And God shows in this passage that he is a faithful God who is worthy of our trust and our faith and our obedience. He provides for David through this Egyptian slave, and he provides for us what we need when we return to him. David once again, is experiencing the life of faith and being the man God wants him to be. And this leads us then to the final part of the chapter where we see David's restoration as God's chosen king. We saw the ruin, we saw the return, and finally the restoration. Look at verse 16. And when he had taken him down, behold, they, this is the Amalekites, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether great or small, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. We see in these verses David's victory over the Amalekites and the restoration of all the goods that had been lost as well. There also is a restoration of respect for David as leader in the eyes of his people. Now, when you're reading the story, it's interesting because it turns out the Amalekites are in the position of greatest vulnerability, right? They're drunk, they're celebrating, they're out of formation, they're drinking and dancing and partying without a care in the world. And it's 
something that we've seen often in this story is that God has prepared the victory for David. That God has, has made everything ready for him to get everything back, to enjoy this victory. Verse 19 says nothing was missing. And even though the odds were stacked against him, right, 400 young men of the Amalekites escaped. So there were as many men escaping as David had in his whole army. Yet despite those odds, David is successful. He's victorious. Everything is restored. Nothing was missing. But despite this, it's not the physical restoration that we need to be focused on. It's not just about the restoration of goods, though that was a good thing. It was a blessing. It's not just about the restoration of their families. It's about the restoration of David to the path that God had placed him on since the day that he was anointed by Samuel. Remember the context. David was living in Philistine country. He was fighting wars, not of God's choosing, but his own. He was telling lies. He was sneaking around and simply surviving. But the loss of his family and home, which leads to his return to the Lord, was necessary to restore him. Necessary to restore him to being the kind of person who God wanted to be king. See, we see in David's story, we see this pattern, we see this kind of movement in the chapter. And this is a biblical truth that happens over and over again, that sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes bad things have to happen in order for our relationship with God to be restored. Sometimes God allows things to go down before they can come up. David lost his home. Maybe he had to lose his home to shake him from his place and to bring him back to living the life that God desired for him to live, a life of dependence, a life of faith, and a life of relationship with the Lord. See, it wasn't the life of health, wealth, and prosperity. That's not what God necessarily wanted most for David, though he would bless him with those things. What God wanted for David was a life of obedience, independence, and true blessing in knowing him. Brothers and sisters, this is what God wants for us as well. I don't know why, in terms of the causes for all the bad things you may have experienced or the bad things you're experiencing now, but I do know that if you are a Christian God wants for you to know him. He wants you to know him better because of the valley you're going through. Why do bad things happen? So that we might turn to the one who is truly good. They're meant to cause us to find our restoration in the Lord. In the same passage of 2 Corinthians I quoted earlier, Paul says that God delivered him before. He will deliver him in his present situation, and he has full hope that God will deliver him Again, now Paul had a difficult life. He went through a ton of bad things, and yet he saw that in every painful moment, God delivered him. We can trust that our God restores no matter the circumstance. And it might not be the restoration that we were expecting. It might not be the restoration that that we would have planned out for ourselves. But it is the restoration that God knows we need. See, brothers and sisters, this, this is what the gospel shows us. Jesus had to descend. He had to come down and take on the sins of the world. He had to suffer and die and be despised and rejected in order to be exalted as the Savior of the world. He did all these things. He was betrayed and buried so that he could conquer sin and death. And so that in his resurrection, we could, in Christ, experience restoration. That we could actually be people 
who call the Lord our God. In the gospel, as it did for David in the story, restoration comes from God's gracious hand. In David's life, he fought the battle. He won the war. He prepared the victory. He did the hard work. And David just had to be obedient to follow him. And brothers and sisters, it's the same for you and me. It's the same for you and me. In this story, the restoration is of physical goods. And, and maybe that frustrates you, right? The Old Testament, it's like every time something bad happens, the restoration is something better physically, right? Like Job was rich and, and prosperous and he lost everything, but at the end, you know, he was even richer and even more prosperous. David loses all this stuff, but he gets it back and he gets back extra spoils. The Old Testament has this a lot, but it's a picture. It's a picture of the better restoration that we have in Christ. The true restoration, the one that really matters, is of David as a man who knows and follows the Lord. And this is what is available to you and me in any and every bad thing that happens. To live by faith, to be obedient, to know and experience then, because of our faith, the goodness of God's grace. Let's look at that in the final part of the story. Verses 21 through 31. As David shares the spoils of war with God's people. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. You can stop right there. Um, you know, when I read this, I realize that um, I'm not a hero, that if I were in the Bible, I might be a wicked and worthless fellow. Because what they say makes a lot of sense, right? Those who didn't fight, why did they get to have all the stuff that we recovered? But as the story continues, David shows us, like I said, that he understands grace. He knows that it wasn't his victory, it was God's. Verse 23, but David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Aror, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Now there's a lot of cities and, and places there. You don't necessarily need to know them all. But what we need to see is David's response. It's the response of someone who understands grace. David says, this is what the Lord has given to us. That our faith has led to God's graciousness in our lives. And so he doesn't have this feeling of fairness, like, no, this belongs to me and not to the men who stayed behind. David's mindset is completely different than some of his men. It's because it's coming from grace that he's able to share it with everyone. Because he understands God's grace, he's restored to the kind of person God wants him to be. Not one who protects himself at all costs, which he was doing for 16 months, but one who is selfless, even when it costs him, because he knows the grace he has been given. Brothers and sisters, we don't always get the physical restoration we desire in this life. 
oftentimes we won't. But that's okay because we can be sure that we are recipients of God's grace. By his grace in every bad thing that happens, there is restoration to be found. If there's ruin in your life, it takes faith to believe, but the Bible says that if there's ruin in your life, if you return to the Lord your God, he will restore you. He will strengthen you. He will make you steadfast. In ways little and big, he will restore you day by day to be the child of God he wants you to be. Maybe it's a struggle of a wayward child, someone who's turned away from the faith. And what God wants to do is to restore you to be a person who prays the way you used to pray before. Maybe it's a struggle of that long-standing, enslaving sin. God wants to restore you to be a person who repents like you did at first, to do the works you did at first, of turning away from your idols and clinging preciously to God, just following fully after him. It could be a trial of sickness or tragedy in which God will restore you to live no longer for the world which is perishing, but for the world to come. In the trial of a loss, he may restore you to care for those around you who have lost as well in a way that your heart had been dulled to. Every ruin in the Lord has restorations, big and small, when we turn to God in faith and we receive from God his grace. There are moments of grace in our lives that remind us that God is good, that we can trust him. And in the end, these moments remind us that the full and final restoration of all things that will happen will be greater than what we can think or imagine. Why do bad things happen? So that in our times of ruin, we might return to the Lord and live by faith. So that in our times of restoration, we might learn to see and to live in God's grace. At the beginning of this message, I talked about Paul, Miller, and Jill. And this struggle that began uh, kind of this deep dive into the question of suffering and why bad things happen, not just to them, but to Kim and to people like them and, and many others who struggle in the world. And uh, like I said, it was the 80s. They didn't have really good um, uh, maybe understanding of all the struggles that um, people might have had. Um, it turns out that Kim, who was born in 1982, had a very severe form of autism, uh, one that meant that she would never be independent. Um, she still lives with them to this day uh, in her uh, eighth uh, or maybe turning 40 this year. Um, she learned to speak single words and, and like simple sentences when she was 25, I think. But in that difficult place, as Paul and Jill turned to God, the Lord their God, he brought about restoration. He used the trials of Kim's life to sanctify this couple and their daughters. And, and Paul tells a story about how about eight years into the struggle of living with this uh, child with special needs, along with the five other kids they had, that his wife turned to him one day, and, and she was just broken. And she said, Paul, do you even love me? Right, do you love me? And he was kind of offended by that. He was like, of course I love you. I'm trying to provide for our family. And she was just so distraught. And so at the end of herself, she just, she just asked him again and walked up the stairs to their bedroom. And Paul Miller, as he tells it, he, 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 in that moment, in that dark moment in their marriage and in their lives, he said he felt the need to see Jesus. And so he took time off work. He, he stepped away from his responsibilities. He went to um, 
a cabin down the road that he would bike to each morning, and he would spend hours in the morning just with the Bible, reading Scripture, looking at Christ, reading the Gospels, finding everything he could about him. He returned to the Lord in his ruin. And through that, the Lord used Paul and Jill Miller and continues to use them in amazing ways to teach them, to give them a heart for those suffering around them, to, to have them begin a ministry to others who struggle with prayer and suffering and disability. But most importantly, he used the struggle to show Paul and Jill and Kim that there is joy when we share in the sufferings of Christ because we also share in the power of his resurrection. Paul Miller says that um, the understanding of bad things in our lives as Christians, it, it can be summed up as what he calls the J curve. Okay, so you guys can imagine, right? It's like a J. You start here and you end there, and there's a dip in the middle. Life isn't smooth sailing. It never is, but there's a purpose. We descend into some darkness or trial or, or a valley, but when we turn to God, we experience an even greater restoration, a resurrection even, in a hundred different ways. God allows bad things to happen, but he does so for a purpose. As a Christian, to bring you closer to Jesus and to make you more like him. To experience the fellowship of his sufferings, to experience the power of his resurrection, to go down with him to the depths of ruin, but to be restored and raised with him to life every time when we return to him. For those who are in Christ, this pattern of life that we see in David's life isn't just a way to look at scripture. And it's not just a way to understand the gospel. It's the way we should expect our lives to be because we are in Jesus. And so at this time, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And I'm going to give an opportunity for you to come to the Lord if there is a situation in your life, a difficult situation, a bad thing that has happened or is happening. To ask for God to, to change your perspective not just for positive thinking, but for you to think biblically, to understand that he has a purpose in suffering, in hardship, in trials, in the valley, to raise us up, to restore us, to have a relationship that is deeper and more rich and more intimate with him. Let's pray together. Father God, I, I ask that as we pray as a community, that you would bring to mind the things that maybe we, we have left unanswered, questions about why you've allowed certain things into our lives and what it is you want to do. And I pray, Lord, you would help us to see the good work you want to do through even the darkness and the valleys. Take this moment now to just pray before the Lord quietly. encourage you to take the time to ask the Lord to help you to return to him and to live by faith and obedience. That in the circumstance of your life, the difficulty you may be facing, 
to walk step by step, putting one foot in front of the other, not in your own strength, but in trust. That where the Lord leads is the place you need to be. I'll give you a few moments to pray that you would live a life of faith. Finally, I would encourage you and ask you to come before the Lord and and ask Him to help you to see the ways in which He wants to restore you by His grace in in a hundred different ways, in in, in small ways to experience many resurrections, as it were, in your life as you become more like Jesus and are drawn closer to Him. Pray that God would give you the eyes to see, to, to experience and to receive His grace to feel restored, or if that has happened in your life, pray in thankfulness to the Lord right now. Father, we thank you. We love you so much, and we thank you that you sent Christ to live on this earth a perfect life, but not just a perfect life, but a life where he suffered, where he was betrayed, where he was broken, where he was rejected and despised and mocked and beaten. Lord, what an incredible truth that we have a God who knows our sufferings. We have a Savior who understands the experientially the great cost of evil. And we also have a Savior who defeated sin and death and rose victorious from the grave and has given us the promise, the sure promise of new life with you. Lord, we just thank you for him. We pray, Lord, that the knowledge of Christ, the remembrance of what he has done for us would fill us with joy in the midst of any circumstance. Help us, Lord, to live by faith, to receive from your hand your grace, to live for your glory and not our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.